invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. And if you're using one of the Bibles here, you should find that on page 973. I was slightly tempted to change our text in light of uh, the animal props here. Maybe Noah's Ark would have been more fitting, surrounded by the animals. I don't know. But instead, we're going to avoid doing that and stick to Galatians chapter 3. It's been a while since we've uh, been in Galatians, I think actually almost two months, uh, but we're going to continue our way through this letter, and we are up to verses 15 through 22. And the previous little section there from verses 10 to 14, Paul had reminded us that, that those who trust in the law, that is those who live and define their relationship to God by means of the works, are cursed. Uh, But those who relate to God by way of the promise, that is by faith, find true blessing in Jesus Christ. And so now the Apostle Paul is going to expand upon that as he goes back in redemptive history. So the Apostle Paul is going to be our tour guide as we go back into history, back to the promise that God made to Abraham, back to the law given through Moses, uh, to better understand why this is the case. That it's not by works of the law, but by faith in God's promise that we truly find salvation, the forgiveness of our sins, life and life eternal in the presence of God. And so before we read, though, let's uh, pray and ask that God might bless this word and open our hearts and our minds to receive it. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and ask that you would give us uh, humble hearts and minds to sit at the feet of Christ, to learn of him and from him, that we might recognize that it is he alone who secures for us your promise and that by faith alone we are uh, found in him and are partakers of that blessing promised long ago to Abraham, uh, but now given to the world in Christ. And so confirm these truths to us, help us to see them clearly, and may Christ, our Lord, be exalted and glorified, we pray in his name. Amen. So Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 22, this is the holy and inspired word of God. To give a human example, brothers... Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be indeed be by the law. But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So far from God's holy word. 
dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what would you point to as the basis of your relationship with God? What would you point to as the basis of your relationship with God? We get some answers getting thrown out. That's okay. It's kind of rhetorical, but that's fine. (laughs) Um, Now, there's many things we might think to appeal to, and oftentimes it may be to our performance, um, our works, what we have done. Um, It may be uh, to various other feelings that we might have. But what is a sure and steadfast and secure basis for our relationship with God? If you remember the Galatians as uh, the church is is found there in Galatia, uh, they were being troubled uh, by various false teachers who had come in and began to shake up the basis that Paul had laid for their foundation to God. These false teachers had come in and Paul says that they are being troubled by them. That which they were once secure in, that which they once had peace in, had now been shaken. They've been troubled. And what had troubled them was that they had, they had shifted the basis of their relationship with God from Christ alone to now Christ plus these various other things, including the uh, sign of circumcision, uh, the uh, keeping of a certain calendar, um, by avoiding certain foods. Right? They added upon Christ and that basis of Christ all of these other works, all these other things to do. And now the Galatians are are troubled. And the Apostle Paul is writing to them to remind them and to remind you that the only sure foundation that you are right with God is your faith in Jesus Christ. Christ alone, who as Paul says here, is the seed to whom the promise or the offspring to whom the promise has been made. It's only by believing in that offspring, Christ, only by receiving him and resting in him, alone do you have a sure foundation and a sure basis for your relationship with God. And so as we think about what the Apostle Paul wants then to teach us here about this, Paul, again, as I said earlier, gives us a kind of history lesson. Uh, he goes back into the Old Testament, right? If You, you can see many pages before uh, what we just read here. Paul goes back to see what took place. Christianity is not just a, a, an ahistorical, a non-historical um, set of religious facts and datums that we just apply randomly. No, Christianity is a supernatural, historic religion. God reveals himself and he redeems his people progressively throughout history. And so when we look back to what God has brought into history, God has entered into history, and God has changed things in terms of his promises and what he has done. The Apostle Paul wants us to see that, to get a better grasp on the fact that it is in Christ alone that my relationship with God, the covenant bond with God, is secure. And so with the Apostle Paul, we're going to look back um, with him and to see what Paul wants us to know and learn and the implications of that for us uh, living today. And so two major points that we're going to consider. First, the offspring and the promise. And secondly, the offspring and the law. Everything Paul has to say here has reference to that offspring, namely Christ. 
Other translations, if you're looking at, may have seed. I may go back and forth um, by looking at offspring and seed, but it's the, it's the same reference. But everything here regarding the promise and everything here regarding the law has to do with Christ, the seed, the offspring, uh, in whom the promise of God finds its fulfillment. And so first, Paul wants us to go back to Abraham. Notice what he says in verse 15. He says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now we need to see first the significance of God making this covenant promise with Abraham. The significance of God making this covenant promise with Abraham. If you recall, uh, this takes place in Genesis chapter 12. You can turn there with me as well, Genesis chapter 12. Maybe an illustration might help to kind of get a grasp on, on the state of the world at the moment this promise is made with Abraham. A few months ago, um, I was in Pennsylvania with my wife, Susanna, and um, we went to this famous cave. I don't remember the name of it, so maybe it's not that famous, but uh, this cave built into the side of a mountain. And so as you walk into this cave, um, it's lit with uh, these electric lights so you can see your way, and as you meander your way through and you walk further, further and in, uh, we got to this room, led by a tour guide, we got, got to this, this, this room, and um, he tells us to close our eyes. And so we close our eyes, and what he ends up doing as our eyes are closed is he turns the lights off, all the electric lights are off, so that when we opened our eyes, there was no difference. It was pure darkness. It was, it was pure um, absence of, of any light whatsoever. And in many ways... Um, in Genesis chapter, up to chapter 11, and up to this point in Abraham's life, there was darkness uh, over the face of the earth, again, in a sense. And the world was in a state of darkness. Uh, as man continued to fall, God had wiped man out previously with a flood. But man, again, now is, is coming together in chapter 11 to build the Tower of Babel, and God con- uh, comes down to scatter them uh, in his mercy. And so we need to recognize that when God comes to Abraham, he comes to a world eclipsed in darkness. And in the midst of that darkness, God gives a faint light, a light that begins in Abraham's day to be faint, but grows as as his work in history progresses. And it comes ultimately to when the light of the world himself descends and comes upon this earth. Christ himself, the seed promised to Abraham. But We need to recognize that when God made this covenant with Abraham, it was a sheer work of his grace and of his mercy. It's why the covenant that's made with Abraham, we speak of it as a covenant of grace. An undeserved world, God comes to Abraham and promises him this. Notice in chapter 12 of Genesis. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. 
And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, and notice again what's being told to Abram, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared uh, to him. And so in the midst of all the darkness, God comes with his covenant promise to Abraham. And he comes with this promise that through Abraham, an offspring will come, a seed will be born who will unleash God's blessing upon the nations. God's intention was not merely to save Abram, who later becomes Abraham and his descendants, but to save the world. Through Abraham, God aimed for the world. God aimed for you. People here from all different parts of the world, we can trace our lines back, right? It is the Abrahamic promise, the blessing that has now come to the world. And it has come through that offspring who was to come, namely to Christ. And the question is that is how do we receive a promise? The, the Apostle Paul tells us that God, when he came to Abraham, did not give him a law to do, but he gave him a promise and a promise to believe. Right, from the very beginning, As God comes in his covenant of grace with his people, it was a matter not of doing, but of believing. Not of works, but of faith. This is what the Apostle Paul uh, tells us in Galatians as he brings us back to Abraham, back to the making of that covenant. Again, as Paul says here, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And that offspring as the Apostle Paul tells us very clearly, revealing the mystery hidden long ago in the Old Testament, now revealed to the world, the offspring who would open up God's promise and his blessing for the nations is Christ. Is Christ. The promise was given to him. And therefore, if the promise was given to him, how then can I receive that promise myself? By believing in him. By believing in Christ, we are united to him by faith. By believing in Christ, all that he has done is ours. And he gives to us. Henrik uh, Bollinger, a uh, Reformation theologian, had said this. He says, most important, as explained to the Galatians by the Apostle Paul, Abraham was promised the Lord Jesus himself. In whom is all the fullness, righteousness, sanctification, life, redemption, and salvation, of whose fullness we have all received grace upon grace, because it pleased the Father that all fullness dwell in him. And through his blood on the cross he has made peace with everything that is in heaven and on earth. And this same Jesus, the same Jesus is the inheritance itself, which has been bequeathed to those who trust in the one and eternal covenant of God. You see, 
promise to Abraham was none other than Christ himself. It's why Jesus can say to the people around him in his day, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, the fulfillment of the promise given, right? Jesus himself says that Abraham rejoiced to see Jesus' day and that he saw it by faith and was glad. Now the Jews then respond to him saying, you're not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. It's Christ himself, the eternal Son of God, who was there, present, even in the Old Covenant, even in the covenant made with Abraham. So that promise to Abraham was none other than Christ himself. None other than Christ himself was promised to Abraham. And the implications of this is then that the promise given to Abraham was not secured by Abraham's doing. It was not secured and made sure by Abraham in any sense of the word. The guarantee of that covenant, the security of that covenant, the surety of that covenant promise being fulfilled was not dependent upon Abraham, but God himself and Christ himself. It is the seed, it is the offspring of Abraham who secures our relationship with God. Again, this goes back to the opening question. What is the basis of your relationship with God founded upon? For Abraham, it was secure because it was founded upon Christ, the one whose day he rejoiced to see. And that continues for all of the sons and daughters of Abraham today, those of faith. The basis of your relationship with God, the foundation of the covenant that God has entered into with you is Christ, the seed, the offspring. I can read another quote. Uh, Dr. Uh, Mark Beach, who was my professor at Mid-America Reform Seminary, had written this regarding Galatians 3. He said, Galatians 3 shows us that the covenant of grace established with Abraham is inviolable, cannot be broken, cannot change, And that doesn't merely mean that it is unalterable. No, this covenant, as a covenant of grace, is inviolable in saving sinners because of the seed, because of the offspring. The one who makes its salvation certain. It's Christ who makes the covenant salvation certain. That is, this covenant rests in Christ, who has fulfilled the whole promise being himself the content of that promise, and he bequeaths the inheritance to the very ones he came to save. You see, what was taught long ago, Paul wants us to see that God's initial dealing with his people was always by faith. It was always believing in the promise, believing in the seed. And while they had heard that promise with less clarity than us today, we come to that same promise knowing As Paul tells us, the offspring, who is Christ? He secures it. And so when you begin to doubt, when you begin to worry, when you begin to think about approaching God, the sole basis that you are to to think about that 
is Christ. It's faith in Christ. The basis of your new relationship with God is not your obedience and not your performance, but Christ and what he has done for you, period. That is the basis of your relationship. It's why the Apostle Paul can say to those in Christ that nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God, that it's in Christ Jesus. Nothing. It's Christ who makes that relationship, that covenant, sure. He is our guarantee. He is our surety. The covenant of grace is truly of grace because Christ is the surety. He fulfills the promise, and he gives it to all who believe in him. You might say, well, isn't faith a work? Faith is doing something. Faith is itself a gift of God, as the Apostle Paul reminds us elsewhere. Faith is itself something that God gives and something that the covenant secures itself. It is all of grace. It is all by faith alone. The Apostle Paul wants them to recognize this. And this is the very beginning. And as Paul says, nothing then can change that, right? And he gives a human example, verse 15. To give a human example. Brothers, even with a man-made covenant... No one annuls it, right? You don't make it invalid. You don't just cross it out or adds to it once it has been ratified. And so the Apostle Paul is making an argument from the lesser to the greater. If a covenant made by man cannot be annulled and cannot be added to, how much more the covenant that God has ratified, how much more the covenant that God has made? The Apostle Paul wants us to see that the covenant made with Abraham is inviolable. It is certain. It is not something that is annulled or invalidated, nor is it something that is added to. It is by faith and by faith alone, as it was for Abraham and as for all of his children who are of faith. And so that same promise comes to us today. And that same promise comes that we believe upon the one Abraham believed upon, Christ himself, And if you have believed in him and trusted in him, then you have been united to him and bound to him. And all that he has secured, including the blessing promised, is yours. Everything Christ done has done, he has done for his people, to share it with his people, so that by faith we receive Christ and all his benefits. By faith you receive Christ and all his benefits, the forgiveness of your sins, the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit, the hope of one day being glorified, entering into the full presence of God in heaven. Those are yours if you are Christ's. And you are Christ if you have believed upon him. And therefore, right, the Apostle Paul wants us then to lean wholly on Christ. I think that's kind of modern language, leaning on Christ, but Calvin said it too, so we can also use it as well. Leaning on Christ. Holy, fully, entirely. Took the subway this morning, right? And you see on the subway, don't lean on these walls because they're probably not very secure, at least the doors. No, I don't think people listen to those. I don't often, but, right? You don't want to lean on them because it's probably not safe to do. They're not secure. But lean wholly on Christ. He is secure. He is immovable. And it's on him that you, your whole life depends. And he is, therefore, secure and safe. Before moving on, a few verses to show how this was itself promised in the Old Testament. If you look with me to Isaiah chapter 42. Uh, 
Isaiah 42, verse 6, we read there, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you, and I will give you, notice the language there, I will give you, a person, the offspring of Abraham, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. Right? This is what God promised, even through Isaiah, in, uh, as they looked forward to a new covenant being given. He promised to give that offspring of Abraham, Christ, to the nations, as a covenant to the nations. And it's Christ who quotes these words in fulfillment of his own ministry. Same thing is repeated a few pages over in Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, verse 8. It says, Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear, and so on. Again, the one who is given, the one whom God promises here, we know by name. It is Jesus Christ whom the Apostle Paul says, right? Again, the offspring, who is Christ? And so Paul wants to just drill it into our minds, press it into our hearts, that it is by faith in Christ and Christ alone, that we are right with God and receive the benefits and all of the blessings of his salvation. And so, right, the Apostle Paul brought us back to Abraham. He brought us back to that moment when the covenant is established. Nothing changes it. Nothing annuls it. But that then leads to our second point and the question, well, then why was the law given? Right, and this is the rub. This is, this is where the false teachers began to confuse things. Because the false teachers all of a sudden began to, uh, to appeal to the law of Moses as that which annulled the promise given or as that which changed the promise given. They didn't properly understand this history. And so that's why the Apostle Paul wants us to go back and to understand it as well. We might ask the same question. Why then did God give the law? And the Apostle Paul begins to show us how the law did not change anything about the promise. Notice what it says, verse 17. The law, which came 430 years afterward, right, the promise was given, and now 430 years later, which Paul is trying to emphasize that's a significant amount of time, the law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, now the promise is spoken of as an inheritance, for if the, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Right, so the Apostle Paul, again, is trying to say the law did not come to now change things. It wasn't as if the way of blessing, the path of blessing was by faith and by by believing the promise and by looking to the offspring. But now God has kind of um, chopped down a tree, put it in front as a roadblock, and now says, now follow this other path. Follow the path of the law. The law will bring you now to life. No, God did not do that. The false teachers began to do that. 
The false teachers began to distort the message of the Old Testament and of Paul's gospel by saying that the law, in fact, did change the path, did change the route. But the Apostle Paul, again, using that human example, saying, if a human covenant is not changed or annulled, how much more the covenant of God? The law did not come to annul the promise. It didn't come to change the way of salvation. And so, again, that raises the question, why then the law? Wouldn't they have been better off with never having been given the law in the first place? They had the promise. Wasn't that enough? And so what the Apostle Paul himself anticipates, right? Verse 19, why then the law? And he gives a few answers. He says, first, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So notice here that Paul first wants us to see that the giving of the law served a temporary purpose. The giving of the law served a temporary purpose. This is all the language that he uses here. Notice the word until, right? It was added until the offspring should come. The offspring promised, right? It it had a, 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 um, a timetable. He goes on to say, uh, in verse 22, we, get, we didn't um, later, but it says this, that the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those uh, who believe. Verse 23, now before faith came, before uh, the Christ had come, we'll say more about that next week, but again, the language here is temporal. The law was given to serve a temporary purpose. And what was that temporary purpose? Well, it was added, as it says there, because of transgressions, until the offspring should come. And the Apostle Paul, by this means, that the law was given, that it might bring to light the sinfulness of the people around them in order that they might turn from their selves and look to the promised offspring. Right? In that sense, the law served the promise. It served the, the coming of the offspring because it kept the people from looking and trusting themselves and their own righteousness and their own works, causing them then to turn from their selves to trust in the offspring who is to come. And in that sense, God's law continues to function like that for you today. It's not the primary use of the law, right? The primary use of the law is that it might be a rule of gratitude for us as those who have been redeemed from our sins, uh, set and made new by Christ. The law is given as a rule of gratitude, but the law also does reveal to us and convict us of our sins. It brings our sins into the light And so, therefore, uh, the law was given that the people of God might not look to themselves and trust themselves. And therefore, the law was given until the offspring should come, until the Christ should come. This is what the Apostle Paul refers to when the Christ does come as the fullness of time in chapter 4. But until then, the law served a purpose not to contradict the promise, not to annul the promise, not to change the way of salvation, 
by the promise, not, not to do anything to, to, contrary to the promise, but rather the law was given as a friend to serve the promise until the offspring should come. And again, it was the false teachers who began to trouble the Galatians by now pitting the two against one another, the promise and the laws, pitting them against one another and really adding them together. You need Christ, indeed, they would say, but you also need the law. You also need these works if you are to be right with God. The Apostle Paul, the very hard stop on that, says absolutely not. The way is by promise. The way is by promise, and the way continues to be by promise, and therefore to receive it is by faith in the seed, in Christ alone. This is what he goes on to say further when he talks about in verses, uh, the end of verse 19. He says that it was put in place regarding the law through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Again, he's just highlighting the fact that whereas the promise was given by God speaking to Abraham, the law was given through intermediaries. It was kind of distance from God. It showed its temporary character. Um, it showed the fact that the promise remained greater than even the giving of this law. The covenant, even during Moses' day, was and remained a covenant of grace. Right, and so more could be said on that, but the basic idea here is, again, just to highlight the temporary nature of the law. Verse 21, just to uh, come to a conclusion here regarding the law. Verse 21 says, is a law then contrary to the promises of God? Right, again, we've been saying no. Paul says, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, right, the law was not given that they might have life, might receive the inheritance, might receive the blessing. If a law had been given for that, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture, the Old Testament, imprisoned everything under sin so the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Again, a very simple point. Paul is saying the law does not annul that. But as for Abraham and so for our day, the promise is received by faith. And faith in the seed, the one whom Abraham looked forward to, Jesus Christ himself. And so I ask the question again, what is the basis of your relationship with God? If, your basis, if the basis of your relationship with God is the works of the law, then it is an unsteady, shakable foundation. That's why the Roman Catholic Church tells us that you cannot have assurance of salvation. You cannot know if God loves you. And it deprives the people of God of deep comfort to know that. But take heart. The Apostle Paul tells us so clearly that if you have believed in Jesus Christ, your relationship with God is sure. Your relationship with God is certain. He is your guarantee. He is your surety. And therefore, do not rely and look to yourself, but lean wholly on Jesus' name as the hymn goes, right? Lean wholly upon Christ and trust him. And in his name, appear boldly before the throne of grace, before God your Father. And in his name, pray to God your Father, knowing that he truly is your Father in heaven. You can have such assurance. The Apostle Paul desires that we have such assurance. 
He desired the church then no longer to be troubled by these false teachers, but to rest in Christ. The same thing you can read the letter to the, uh, to the Colossians and others, right? Don't look to add things to Christ as you define your relationship with God, but instead rest wholly on Jesus' name. Amen. But gracious God, we thank you that in our own confusion and in the confusion uh, that we hear from false teachers, even in Paul's day, uh, that we might find clarity in your word and a simplicity that is true and, and, and comforting, that it's by faith alone, in Christ alone, that salvation is by grace alone. And so, Father, help us then to turn from trusting in ourselves as we think upon how we relate to you, our God. But help us look to Christ, the one who died for us, whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of all of our sins, and who was raised to newness of life, who shares that life with us and all who believe. So strengthen our faith in Christ, our Lord, and may, may we rest wholly in him. In Jesus' name, amen.